Welcome to an episode of the Defo Mohapi Show, hosted by myself, Defo Mohapi. Thank you for taking some time out to listen to this podcast. The show explores the impact, whether famously or infamously, some of my guests have had on the world, their views on the state of the world currently, and what they think needs to be done to make our world better, or at minimum, how we can all get along better and do better. Make sure to head over to radio.iafrican.com. That is radio.iafrican.com. And subscribe to get notified on new episodes of this podcast and other iAfrican radio shows. I hope you find this episode insightful. There's a poem that J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote the books about the Lord of the Rings, and yeah. there's a line in there that says, uh, not all those who wonder are lost. And I was just wondering, like, why did you do this trip that you just did? I mean, you did 90 days on a bicycle, some buses and some trains traveling across the continent. I really, I really like that line, not all those who wonder are lost. Yeah, I think that's great. So I lived in uh, Uganda in middle school, and there was um, someone who was doing the same trip who met one of yeah. our teachers. She brought him in to do a presentation, talk about it. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I was like, I want to do that one day. Uh, and then 10 years later, it, I remembered it. And I was like, oh, maybe now's the time. I should go for it. So what pushed you to do it? I mean, it was, was it just curiosity to just go travel the continent or was it something else? Yeah, I think curiosity is a big part. Kind of wanting to see the entire continent kind of like end to end. Uh, seeing how each place is different, the diversity of places, learning more about uh, each different country I'm passing through. But also, yeah, you know, the sense of adventure, meeting people, getting involved with things. Yeah, and kind of like the romance of travel. And I'm asking because to me, I mean, you, you chose a different type of, of traveling across the, different, across the continent. And to me, it sounds like punishment. I mean, you literally, uh, I was looking at the, going through the pictures when I was preparing for the podcast. You literally only packed your, your bicycle and a few, like a few clothes and camera phone and all that stuff. I mean, why bicycle? Why not travel by train? Why not sleep in hotels? Yeah, I think bicycle is a great way to travel because it forces you to go slowly. When you travel by other, like when you're traveling by, when you take a plane somewhere, you can just pass through a lot of things and without realizing what you're skipping. When you're forced yeah. to go slowly, you, you kind of have to acknowledge the place that you're in. You really see like kind of the gradual changes in landscape you're really forced to interact with people, you know, whether it's like grabbing a snack from a little kiosk at the side of the store or uh, figuring out directions. It's a nice way to travel for that reason. The other thing that's really nice about traveling by bicycle, just kind of traveling by your own means, is you're able to get out of the route that people expect you to take, if you understand what I okay. mean. Okay. Yeah, so, I, do, I do. So so you're not taking like the normal roads, you're taking like back roads, etc. Is that what you mean? Exactly, yeah. And the nice thing about that is, let's say you're kind of just taking a bus from center of Joburg to center of Cape Town or yep. uh, Nairobi to Kampala or something. You're ending up from places where there's a really built up tourist infrastructure. And so people expect you as a tourist to show up and you're kind of just interacting or it's very easy to only interact with that tourist infrastructure. You know, you you get there, there's someone to trying to... Uh, get you a taxi, you go to the main hotel. Or someone uh, trying to hustle you or to sell you something. Exactly, yeah, exactly. 
Uh, and so you don't see, it's very difficult to escape that and to escape the people who are coming to like interact with you as a tourist. Okay, that makes sense. And I mean, are, are there any sort of profound lessons, life lessons that you would say you learned or was it just something that's fun and curious that you learned along the way? That's hard to say. I think I'm, I'm still like um, evaluating in my mind, thinking about it over the next coming weeks. Seeing if I'm going to come away with any big lessons. But yeah, for sure, just the fun of it. Uh, the fun, the peace, the, yeah, the, like enjoying each day, enjoying the moment. Before we get back to the trip, because I still have more questions on that. I think for some of our listeners, they might be wondering, who's this guy I'm talking to? Who is Majed Ahmed Korga? So I'm Egyptian, uh, originally Egyptian. Grew up mostly yep. in Canada, but kind of moved around a bunch. I mentioned I live in Uganda for a little bit. And I studied computer engineering, worked at Google in San Francisco after graduating. And yeah. uh, after a little bit of time there, I thought it was time for a change. So I was going to... What were you doing yeah, at Google? What, what software, were you doing there? I was a software engineer working with Google Cloud, uh, working on a lot of their uh, data infrastructure, uh, data engineering team for uh, their corporate data. Just way deep into, <laughs> deep in the Google pipe. Okay. And after Google, I mean, what, what happened? Where did you go? Yeah, so my plan was to leave to do this trip. Uh, just kind of take the time ha- as long as it takes. And I met the, I happened to meet the founders of where I work now, uh, this startup yep. called Applied Intuition. And they persuaded okay. me to join them early on. And then uh, after after working there for a little bit, go do this trip and come back. And uh, I mean, what's, what's this company, Applied Intuition? What does it do? Applied Intuition does simulation software and other uh, autonomous, uh, other infrastructure for autonomous vehicle companies. So self-driving cars. Exactly. So software to help uh, help develop self-driving cars, help bring them to market quickly and safely. Back to your trip, man. I mean, obviously, traveling across the continent, you get to see different countries. Like, literally, you got a first-hand opportunity to see different countries off the beaten track, if I can put it that way. And as you said, not in the tourist sort of infrastructure. And what 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 were the striking or key things that you noticed traveling as an Egyptian, because that also counts, across these countries and how people interacted with you? Difficult to say. Every country is very different, obviously. Um, sure, sure. So in South Africa, we were in North, we were in Cape Town and then up to Northern Cape right away. By bicycle yeah. from Cape Town to Northern Cape. Yeah, and then into Namibia, which, as you know, is very kind of like very deserted, very Afrikaans heavy. And there in South Africa, I was with my uh, with an American friend for the first three weeks. Okay. Yeah, so we were definitely kind of warmly welcomed, seen as tourists, uh, people seen other kind of bike tourists there. We were invited to Bryce very frequently, yeah, which was great. And then as I got more into, uh, once I'm in uh, Zambia, I've, it's very clear that I'm seen as a Mzungu, as a foreigner. And Interesting. So they, they saw you as a Mzungu. Yeah, yeah, for the most part. So one time in Zambia, people were debating. <laughs> I overheard it and then I joined in. There's a group yeah. of guys uh, debating whether I'm Mzungu or not. And I was telling them, is Arab Mzungu? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's an interesting dynamic because I can understand where they're coming from. And it's yeah, they're saying, yeah, yeah, they're saying yeah. like if they, if they don't know about, you know, they went to school, they don't know about what an Arab is. Then for them, Mzungu seems right. <laughs> it's, <a cousin. laughs> it's true because there's always there's also the the other side of it because that's a nice side of it the other side of it is not so nice which i've heard sometimes is that uh, some people say egyptians and maybe i should pose this question to you and you can enlighten me some people like saying oh no egyptians are not africans or the other alternative people like saying is 
Egyptians don't see themselves as Africans. I mean, what's your take on that? I think kind of like every country has uh, like concentric circles of identity. You kind yep. of, part of your identity is based on, you know, your tribe, the nation as an African. And definitely in Egypt and Northern Africa, a big part of that is being, being Egyptian uh, is a big part of your identity, being Arab, being Muslim or Christian religion, and being African as well. So yeah, I think it's unique in that being Arab is a much larger part of your identity than you'd see in other African countries. But I do think Egyptians do think of themselves as African for the most part. But what's also interesting about specifically Egypt from a geography point of view, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm not wrong, part of Egypt is in Europe, right? So the Sinai Peninsula is in Asia, but no part of it is the in Sinai, Europe. They're in Asia, sorry. They're yes. In Asia, yes. So back to your trip, man. I mean, talking about South Africa, how long did it take you to go from Cape Town to sort of the border of Namibia cycling? Was it yeah, a combination it was, of cycling? Uh, yeah, some cycling, some hitchhiking, which was, which was plenty of fun. Carrying your bike. Yeah, just throwing it on the back of a backy. So two weeks to there, then from there it was Namibia? Yeah, Namibia to Windhoek, and then up into, yeah, some, we did some uh, wild camping in the Namibian desert. I rented a car for a little bit to go around uh, and really be able to get deep into the desert. And then uh, now, there to Zim. I mean, Northern Cape, as you know, it's very dry and deserted, as you said. Obviously, you said you were invited for prize and stuff. But once you got into Namibia, you weren't carrying any foodstuffs, were you? No, we'd, we'd stock up in grocery stores. Um, ah, so as you food, travel, have a little uh, up, camping yeah. stove. Exactly, yeah. Buy a lot of snacks. A lot of uh, our favorite was from South Africa and Namibia were cheese snacks. Cheese snacks. Uh, yeah. Those are quite nice, but they can they can get a bit boring after some time. So Namibia, then you went into Zambia, right? Mm-hmm. And then from Zambia, where was it to? So from Zambia, I took this really cool three-day sleeper train called the Tazara Line okay. from uh, a town called Kapiri Posi to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. How long did that take? Yeah, that was a three-day train ride. And traveling, I mean, I'm trying to put myself in your in your shoes or in your mind and understand doing this trip like obviously this was the first time am i right doing such a long trip by 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 bike or by hitchhiking Mm -hmm. what's going through your mind i mean was it at any point were you thinking especially the times where you were traveling alone thinking that you might not make it or what happens when you get injured or did any bad like thoughts or things like that come across your mind so one of the surprises of this trip has been how easy and safe it felt. I was expecting it to be a lot more deserted, a lot harder to figure out where to find food, where to get water. Um, And that's really not the case. When you're on kind of main highways in big towns or even along small towns, it's really, really easy to, you know, there's restaurants everywhere. There's everyone's really helpful. Uh, So I, as I was traveling, I wasn't too concerned with that. I know, you know, if anything happened, if I got sick, I could, I could most likely figure it out, find some help um get to where i need to be that's that's quite opposite to what one would expect that's why i asked that question because generally one would think that again traveling across africa traveling on especially on foot or on bike it might be a bit risky but based on what you say it was relatively safe and the other question is about like how did you manage visas or does an egyptian visa get you through borders easier so i'm canadian as well which is uh which is the uh, blessing which helps yeah. yeah. So mostly uh, get visas on arrival at the border. I had to apply early for the Ethiopian one and the Sudanese one. Sudanese visa. And those were the only two that, that you needed to have ahead of the time. Exactly, yeah. And did you encounter any wildlife that might have scared you along the way? No, no big predators, uh, luckily. Uh, but saw a lot of just wildlife along the road. Saw some zebras, saw some giraffes, saw 
rhinos, ostriches, uh, elephants along the road. And elephants, elephants are the animal you should be scared, scared of, uh, especially when you're on a bike. They don't mess around. Uh, so yeah, stop, stop early, stay clear when they were ever near the road or anything like that. I was a little bit worried when I was camping to get squashed by an elephant. But otherwise, I think uh, animals don't mess with, like, they don't try and enter tents. They don't mess with tents. Yeah. And and the people, I mean, you, you mentioned that when you were talk, when you were traveling, the people were quite friendly and helpful and willing to assist, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. Did you notice any difference in terms of cultures? Not cultures in terms of traditions, but in terms of people's attitudes towards you as you were going across the different countries? Like, were people different in South Africa in how they engaged with you compared to how they would engage with you, maybe in Ethiopia, maybe in Sudan, etc.? So let me give you the uncensored version of this. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So, yeah, in South Africa, going up. uh, So, yeah, we're in a very Afrikaans area. Yeah. And what was shocking was, like, every every Afrikaans person we met was within maybe five minutes of the conversation. It was something that, like, they would usually mention something so racist, I was shocked. Well, I, 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 I'm, I'm not shocked, but I'm also shocked because they didn't know you. Yeah, I'm not, I don't want to stereotype. Uh, it just happened to be the people we came across. <laughs> but, and these are Afrikaans-speaking South Africans, right? Exactly, yes, exactly. So it's things like, okay. just things that just, like, made me feel a little bit uncomfortable, usually racist towards black Africans or sometimes towards me. Yeah. Uh, but while still being, you know, keeping a lure of friendliness and welcoming. Give me an example. I mean, I just want to get a sense if it's similar to what we experienced down here. I'll give an example. We were invited once to a braai. But we, uh, me and my friend, so <laughs> I was grateful for this part to have my white American friend with me. Okay. Uh, we, so he was, got... he was like your your get out of jail card exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah we walked into this bar it was one day it's a really hot day in uh, this small town called ludwig i believe or i forget its name um yeah. ludwig's ludwig's and we get invited to a braai at a farm and kind of uh the entire bar comes along they all go to us and he he uh he tells us well he'll host us we stay the night drop you off the next day you can keep going and just being like absolutely kind, absolutely friendly. Yeah. Set up the bride, just like feeding us, giving us drinks, bringing the whole family over. So that was the context. And then as the night kept going and as everyone, they were all getting a little bit drunk, everyone was getting a little bit drunk. <laughs> just started making jokes like asking me where I'm from. At one point, he, he thought I was Jewish. He was like, are you Jewish? And he made the joke, six million Jews died in Europe. One dies here tonight. And weren't you scared when he said that? I was a little bit scared. I wasn't sure how much of it was a joke, how much of it was serious. And the context, <laughs> the other background for this is he had brought out his handgun to show us, the one that he keeps underneath his bed. And so he was walking around a little bit drunk holding his handgun <laughs> while making these jokes. Yikes. Um, uh, yeah, just walking out, shooting it outside. One time uh, he shot us out. It was really loud. He shot us out. We all look outside. <laughs> Yeah, and he's he's just standing there uh, taking a leak right out the door. Otherwise, things like uh, there was um, so yeah, this this really shocked me. There was one uh, kind of black South African out the bride as well, and yeah. as soon as he, as soon as he left, he turned to us and he started ranting. I wasn't really understanding him, so I yeah. asked his granddaughter to uh, to translate for me, and what she says is, "Yeah, we're not racist, you know, but usually we don't like to invite them over to our house. They they get too comfortable." 
we work with them and everything, but usually yeah, you avoid in, you invite avoid inviting them over or having lunch with or having lunch with them and things like that. We we do still have quite a bit of racism that's that's left over in this country. It's yeah. not subtle racism. It's quite shocking. It's definitely enlightening. And so as you moved, I mean, that's a South African experience, and that's typical of the of the farm sort of small town. Not even in small towns, even in big towns, you still get it. As you moved outside South Africa, did you experience anything similar or did you notice a change in attitudes in terms of cultures of people and how they engage with you? Yeah, I mean, once you get into Namibia and Zambia, then definitely people perceive me kind of as a foreigner and as a, like as a white foreigner, in a sense, um, yeah. as I said. So I think that's, that's a kind of a big privilege when you're interacting with people, interacting with authority figures or uh, just interacting with anyone. They... Uh, you can't expect to be treated like a local and they treat you better because of that. Okay. But in terms of culture, in terms of how people, yeah, the culture of people from country to country, I think, yeah, generally once you go to Zambia, Tanzania, people are, uh, people are really kind, really welcoming, really friendly. Yeah, and then you see the same in Kenya. I think Tanzania especially tends out for that. Ethiopia is well mm-hmm. known for being a little bit closed off to foreigners. It is a bit, yes. I noticed that as well recently. It definitely has that stereotype. And I think people are, stands up for being, in some ways, people are less welcoming, less open, just out of the box, you know, like like when you first meet them or when you're just first interacting with someone on the street. But I think the other side of that is once you get to know someone, Ethiopians are incredibly, incredibly friendly. And you just, you know, you get invited to meet the family, get invited to meals, um, and kind of like build real relationships, real friendships with people. So it's the two sides of that coin. I didn't stay. Look, my, my experience was different because I was sort of mostly in between hotel and, and the conference venue and occasionally go out to a restaurant. So I didn't really get to interact with, uh, with Ethiopians that much. For sure, on yeah. that I think... level, rather, rather on that level, I did interact with Ethiopians, but not at, uh, how can I put it, at a social level. Let me put it yeah, yeah, yeah. And even with me, I was only there for like, maybe two weeks, I think my impressions would be very different if I stayed maybe six months. And maybe I would understand more of the nuances of Ethiopia. I'm sure uh, I'm very much simplifying it. And I mean, once uh, that's one thing. I mean, to, to keep it a little bit lighthearted, did you sample any of the local alcohols as you went along? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was a lot, a lot of great things to taste. <laughs> no, but, honestly, uh, one of the highlights of the trip has been in every uh, every big city I passed through, going out and exploring the nightlife of the cities. That was such a blast. Can you imagine? Because that that like gave you relief from the day to day travel, in a way. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was a good change, you know, going from being in really out, really remote areas to being in big cities, going out, meeting people, and kind of the mix of the two is, I think, what really made the trip. Oh. Afro pop, clubs in. You know, capital cities across the continent really stood out, really. Uh, there's nothing else like it anywhere in the world. So are they, I mean, what type of music? That's another thing I wanted from a cultural and social. What type of music? And it's good that you experienced the nightlife. What type of music was sort of like popular across or similar across the, the different cities or different? Yeah, I mean, um, you definitely get kind of your top 40 in a lot of places, uh, just like global top 40. Yeah. Uh, and then you get Nigerian music anywhere you go. Um, so Afrobeat from Nigeria is like... Exactly, Afrobeat. South African house music is also really popular. Uh, yeah. Maybe up, up to Kenya. 
And then, yeah, also Afrobeats from East Africa, some Tanzanian, Kenyan, Ugandan artists you heard in a lot of places. And then you really start seeing, so you really start seeing uh, Afrobeats becoming less popular in Ethiopia. It's, uh, no, it's, it's a lot of, lo lot of local music. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Ethiopia has, it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of its own unique culture developed or, you know, sounding ear history. So the local music there is really popular and it, it was really great. I enjoyed going out to kind of uh, music houses as, uh, as Maripa, I think it's called. Yeah. Yeah, to, to experience that. Uh, and then Sudan as well, you hear it a little bit, but then you also start getting the Arabic music. And then by the time I reached Egypt, I think I heard one Afropop song once <laughs> playing at a... <laughs> what's, popular, uh, was, what's popular in Egypt? Yeah, in Egypt, it's, it's Egyptian music. <laughs> okay, it's like Ethiopia. Exactly, yeah. And Egyptian music spread. It spread south until I heard my first Egyptian song in Zanzibar in Tanzania. It was on the radio there. That's interesting. Yeah. Why yeah. would that be? I, uh, I think Zanzibar and Tanzania, kind of like the Swahili coast along uh, Tanzania and Kenya in general, has a lot of Arab influence. Yeah, and once I got there, it was much, much more common for uh, people to start speaking to me in Arabic, just seeing me and right away uh, caught talking in Arabic. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, I was I was surprised. I didn't expect it, but on the on radio stations in Zanzibar, there's Egyptian music. I and wouldn't then, expect that in East Africa. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, definitely in Sudan, there's a lot of it. Uh, it's popular, and obviously in Egypt too. Did anyone confuse you to be Mohammed Salah? You look <laughs> quite like him. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> so at so one point, I think that should have given you a free pass to a lot of things. Then you could just say I'm Mohammed Salah. <laughs> So I told people he was my brother. <laughs> and I think That's a good one. Everyone like stood for a minute being like, for real? Serious? <laughs> Serious? <laughs> but oh, yeah. it, it was hard to say that for real. But yeah, no, like once my hair and beard grew out a little bit, it was at least 20 times a day. Someone would stop me, or people would just. Talk, say, I would hear people talking among themselves, saying "Muhammad Salah" they pass and then yeah, laughing. Yeah, then pointing at you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. Must have been fun. Yeah, and I mean, coming back to to the trip again. I mean, Africa is not in terms of travel. You were doing it by a by a bike. Would you say it's 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 relatively easy to again um you you were slightly more privileged because you were carrying a Canadian passport as well. Would you say I mean is it easier to travel across the continent or would you see it as the Canadian passport helped? No, so actually in my first day there, I met another Egyptian in a, in the Hassel thing at Cape Town, and he was doing the same thing with his, with the Egyptian passport. There was some he was taking a slightly different path for that reason, unfortunately, but he was he was able to cross the continent, and uh, he told me about a lot of other, other Egyptians who do the same trip. So it's possible. It takes uh, he had to apply early for a lot more visas, while I had the flexibility to apply uh, at the border. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, def it's definitely possible. I think it's it's rel yeah, it's relatively easy to travel yeah to travel to the countries to figure out the way. Okay, I guess also the the, the visa on arrival helps, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 that for sure helps. Cool. Now back to to IT and tech and the work you do. I mean, you you're a pro software developer, am I right? Software engineer, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's correct. And looking at, I want to bring it back to sort of general thoughts on tech and the world we're in and big tech, etc. We've seen, I think, over the past 10 or so years, we've sort of had waves where before the internet was quite popular, 
it was more enterprise. I, I sort of tech was when you talked about tech, it was more enterprise tech. So you were talking about the Microsofts and the IBMs, etc. Mm-hmm. And then came the wave of the the consumerization, if I can put it that way, of of technology, especially with the introduction of smartphones and the internet becoming popular. Mm-hmm. And that was supposed to sort of democratize a lot of things and make create opportunities for everybody, sort of become an equalizer for anybody in the world, whether you're in a developing country or developed country, you would have the same opportunity. But as time has gone on, we've seen that the power has sort of concentrated into the hands of a few big players mm-hmm. and sort of, in a way, stripped away that decentralized opportunity from underdeveloped countries. Yeah. What's your views on that? I mean, how do you see this playing out and what's your current views on that? Something that was on my mind a lot I was, as I was doing this trip is what role does technology have in um, equalizing power in leading uh, to development? And it it's difficult to answer. Uh, let me give you an example of kind of like the challenges with that. So sure. in Lodwar, which is way up in the northern northwestern uh, corner of Kenya, and uh, yeah. kind of rem- the remote, remote region near the Ethiopia border. There, I came across, I happened to come across um, this tech development bootcamp. So they teach graphic design, they teach coding, they teach sysadmin skills to students in this town. And then, so that's one part of it. And then the other part of it is they try and find jobs for those students and find clients for graphic design, web development, and so on Yeah. to, to bring in money. And then they also want to work, uh, they're still developing this, they want to develop an incubator for students who learn these skills to build their own startups uh, and kind of the success, the the long-term plan is the success of that incubator will fund this entire program. It's called the okay. Startup Alliance of Cloudware. So it was, yeah. So I think it, things like that could work well, but okay. it's obvious how challenging it is. It's not easy. What do you mean by challenging? Like what specifically? What they do is they try and get gigs by applying on uh, freelance platforms things like Fiverr, Odesk, and so on. Uh, okay. or, so, you know, so you're monetizing the skills that you learned, which seems like a great use case. But it's, it's incredibly difficult to get good paying, good paying work, as I saw there. Uh, they would be, land something maybe once a month for all the students. And That's this is, good. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and this is kind of like, um, you know, bidding at the lowest end of the spectrum for these jobs. Is it a skill thing? Is it an experience thing? Uh, how do you think that can, I mean, one you, one needs to improve the, the, the amount of money they can earn per job, but the other one is increasing the frequency of the jobs. What, what, what from, your, from what you've observed, what do you think needs to change? I think it's just like these, pl- what was obvious is that it's difficult to find quality work through these platforms. And it's just about the, it's just about connections to do kind of service work, which is what this is, like as a, like providing these service, you need to have it deep is. relationships with clients and clients are mainly in, you know, especially on these platforms are in Western countries. So when you don't have that relationship, it's hard to get good offers, good, good jobs. I don't know if you know Andela. Yeah, yeah. Do you think a model like that, the one that Andela uses works, where they don't put, they don't bid on, on, on freelancing platforms. They go out and develop relationships with corporate clients and yeah. try to place their, 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 their trainees on, on those projects. Yeah, absolutely. From what I understand from uh, what I know about Andela, they, uh, they have a presence in Silicon Valley. They have a close relationship with a lot of the companies there. 
uh, or a lot of the companies here rather. So it's much easier in that sense uh, uh, to get clients and to get good quality work from that, which, yeah, which makes sense to me. So to, yeah, to develop these kind of services jobs, you absolutely need to have a presence in, you know, the places which are, uh, which have the work. I met another uh, outsourcing company when I was in Egypt and they had yeah. uh, as well a sales presence in Germany. And yeah, without it, they would not be able to do what they're doing. And they're very successful now, which was great to see. And they're, you know, they're offering great, like they're hiring new grads out of uh, computer engineering and computer science. Uh, the pay was pretty great. And yeah, they do that with, with that sales presence in Germany. Back to my question then, then it means that the, the internet really hasn't been a sort of leveling the playing field or democratizing this. If people still require to have sort of presence in these countries where their clients are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think just the internet alone as an open platform, which is a, makes an equal playing field where everyone, uh, everyone can compete based on talent. I think that's hard to see. Maybe it will take time, but I don't, from my opinion, I don't see it really happening at a large scale because at the end of the day, like you mentioned, people are going to need to buy from other people and it's about relationships. So, and relationship means it's about trust. So they need to trust that the skill they're getting is going to deliver on the work that's going to be done. So if you sort of getting a person who you haven't met doing the work across the internet and who you don't know, it's very difficult to give them a big project. For sure, for sure. So then moving back to tech, I mean, how do you see the whole, in terms of tech in Africa specifically across the continent, how do you see things playing out? I mean, we, as I said, we, see, we saw a wave of enterprise tech and everything was dominated by Microsoft, IBM, SAP, and all those big players. And now we've moved into sort of the consumerization of tech where we're seeing, again, different types of companies, Google, Facebook, and all those sort of dominating, but it was supposed to be the age where anybody can build their own platform, any country can have their own dominating platforms, but it's not turning out to be like that. How do we sort of wrestle this back as in Africa or in the individual countries and sort of develop our own tech? Or, how, what, what, or is it even necessary? For example, Ethiopia, which has a much more protectionist economy uh, and is only recently liberalizing, they have their own Uber. They have their own Uber Eats and so on. They've developed these apps yes. locally because uh, the foreign companies weren't able to come in. So maybe that is the like the protectionist approach is the better approach if the goal is to develop these companies uh, locally. It's difficult to say because on the other hand, when you are when you do have the foreign competition, it forces companies to perform better. Uh, That's better. True. Yeah, exactly. And then the companies providing these services, you know, the, like the Uber drivers are getting getting paid from being on the platform. So there True. is there is a benefit to the economy. So the the trade-off from the two approaches is difficult difficult to say, difficult to see. Yeah, and and the other thing with a protectionist uh, type environment is that you need to I guess you need to decide as a country whether you're a free market country or you're not because you can't have it both ways, can you? You exactly. can't say you you can't say you're open to competition and you a free market country that encourages business, but at the same time, you put in so much regulation that only some type of competition is available. But I, I, my only worry is that over time, especially for Africa with, with the skills development issues, the education issues that we have across parts of the continent, is that, again, we'll find ourselves sort of as a laggard, as a, as a, as a continent that's still, or not just as a continent, because different countries differ in terms of how they perform. But most of the countries might find themselves, 
again, just being consumers of things and not necessarily producers. And it gets worse, I think, with tech because you take something like uh, Uber. Let's use Uber as an mm -hmm. example. Uber takes 20%, but Uber doesn't pay taxes in any local country that it works in mm -hmm. because it's incorporated in, I think it's in the Netherlands. So yeah. it doesn't pay. It. So again, it can generate a lot of money in a country. Yes, it, 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 it creates jobs for the, for the drivers, but at the same time, quite a good part of the value gets taken out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just extracting that money out. And kind of, yeah, and on so, that note, it happened to me, I was lucky to meet a, a few startups and VCs in Nairobi and kind of see the tech scene there. Yeah. And one of the things that concerned me along those lines is when a VC funds a startup in Nairobi, usually it's American capital or some kind of Western capital or, you know, Japanese capital and a Japanese VC as well. Yeah. They're expecting an exit on that and their exit isn't that this company becomes massive enough to IPO and be its own independent company. Their exit is a multinational company, Asian, European, or American comes in and buys it as part of their expansion into Africa strategy. All, there's a lot of great startups and they're all working on cool things, but I'm concerned in that they're all building with the goal of being bought by a multinational company based elsewhere. And then that company's goal in the end is either, either to see growth for their revenue and their end state will be also extracting, extracting. Yeah, extracting out. that money. So paying li as little taxes locally as possible and extracting mm -hmm. the bulk of that outside. And to your point, I mean, you, you're quite correct. Because the other point is that these VCs, especially American ones, they mm -hmm. expect every single extent to be corrected. But I think every single American VC that invests in an African tech startup expects it to incorporate in Delaware. Mm -hmm. which speaks to the same thing that, look, they, they, at the end of the day, it's all about moving the money, betting on the fact that this company is going to grow and either get acquired, as you say, by mm -hmm. a European or Asian company or North American company, or if it becomes big enough and it grows fast enough, it's still incorporated in America where that's the only place where it's supposed to be paying taxes. Yeah. So that's, that's my big worry in terms of, of tech. I mean, I can see all the, all the great things happening, all the startups coming up and the growth and the money being thrown in. But looking forward like five, 10 years, 20 years ahead, you get a sense that, yes, there'll be a lot of activity happening on the ground, but a lot of that value will not sort of stay on the continent, but will be extracted out, which is yeah. the same model that's been happening in decades past during the natural resources era where mining was big. It was extracting all those, uh, the gold, everything, and sending it elsewhere to be refined. Absolutely. But do you think is there, is there a solution to that or is the only way to do it like how Ethiopia does it? Maybe protectionist models will work better. I think, I mean, I'm not an economist. It's, it's very difficult to... Uh, yep. Think about the trade-offs of that, because obviously there are drawbacks to that. The economy suffers when you're not a free market. Maybe, I think if we can push for more technology startups and businesses to take funding with the goal of becoming a cash-generating local business, and mm -hmm. even if that business isn't large enough to be in the, uh, to create liquidity through an IPO, as long as it's self-sustaining and can, you know, can give a return to the investors, that seems like it has a lot more potential. And in terms of, I mean, still talking tech, in terms of um, the types of technologies, uh, I was quite talking of Ethiopia. I think Ethiopia is a very interesting country, never mind the size of 100 million people, but because of how it's been protectionist, 
there's I was surprised to discover that they have about 40 uh, small scale mobile phone assembly plants there. So mm-hmm. these are mobile phone assembly plants that build about 500,000 phones a year or so. And these are feature phones. So these are not really, there are some smartphones, but mostly feature phones. So like the 40 different types of brands that are being assembled locally in and around Addis Ababa. It got me wondering that because again, talking of tech startups across the continent, you get a lot of hype around doing things similar to what are being done in Silicon Valley. So nowadays you get people talking blockchain, talking machine learning and artificial intelligence, etc. And then I looked at Ethiopia and I thought to myself, we're actually trying to do things where there isn't really a market yet on the continent where areas there is such a huge market. We're still a few stages sort of back in terms of tech development. Maybe we should be looking at starting at things like a hardware level and starting there and building from there. I mean, the advantages of investing in manufacturing for development is unlike technology. Technology optimizes for reducing labor in a sense while with manufacturing you need a large large labor base so there's and that's one of the things i was thinking about uh along the trip yeah i think uh from beginning of the trip to the end i became much less optimistic about the role technology can have in leading to transformational development welcome to the club (laughs) (laughs) yes and yes i think just going back to the basics Investing in things like infrastructure, manufacturing, that, that's what's needed. You know, being able to bring people up from a dollar a day to $5 a day working in a... In a that's factory. exactly what's needed, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one thing. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that in terms of poverty and the, the standard of living on the continent. I've always had this argument recently over the past two years mm-hmm. and being a software engineer by training and a technologist, and I look at everything and I think... We, we re- I think we're really going about things the wrong way. And my mm. primary argument is that we can develop all these great things, all these great apps, all these beautiful and well-efficient apps that are for, targeted for consumers. The mm-hmm. problem will always remain, which is that there isn't enough people with disposable income to spend on these things. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to build, you know, $100 million company consumer app targeting people that are making a dollar a day, two dollars a day, etc. That's right. I mean, because it, it only works in, in big cities. So you look at Nairobi, maybe you think like Uber Eats and, and Uber Work, look at Johannesburg, Cape Town, etc. Maybe those work. But you even find with uh, ride hailing and things like Uber and Bolt, which used to be taxify, that when you travel across the continent, you start noticing the different levels of service. Or, yeah, the different levels of service you get in different cities. For instance, I think last year I was in Accra and even in Kampala. You find that they only have a very low-end level of Uber. It's not even Uber X. Mm. That, to me, gives me a sense of the sort of socioeconomic standards of that city. So they wouldn't yeah. have an Uber Black, for instance, and they would only have this low-end Uber, which is like a very tiny car. Yeah. And that's a normal Uber there. So that, to me, gave me a sense of sort of the... It always gives me a sense of the socioeconomic standards in those cities. And it always sort of reinforces... Maybe it's a bias, my, my belief that the first thing we need to be doing is trying by all means to get as many people out of poverty and increase income levels. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How do we go? I mean, it can take play a role there or is it something that countries need to play a role in and, and big corporates need to play a role in? 
Yeah, so one uh, one optimistic or one more positive example is MCOPA. Yeah, the solar guys, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I had heard about it a little bit before this trip uh, briefly, and I was surprised at how prevalent it is across Kenya and Tanzania and way out in the remote areas and small villages. People, you know, I saw people with MCOPA shirts. I saw their stores. I saw uh, people kind of mention it as examples uh, of... Um, of borrowing to rent, so that that could be a po- things like that could be a positive uh, example, allowing people to afford energy. Yeah, yeah. And so, then, f- from what says from the business model point of view, in terms of borrowing or lending to rent. Yeah, yeah. So you you pay as you go. I think their model is, from what I understand, you pay per use as you go, and then eventually you own the solar panel. Okay. And then yeah, so it was really interesting to see a small hut in a small village with a with a solar panel on top. And I saw that in a lot of places. Again, and that's and that's. I'm glad you brought up Mkopa and solar. But don't you think that's a failing of public infrastructure in terms of such a company only exists in a country where the government is not providing electricity? So something like that wouldn't exist in in Canada or the US. In a sense, yeah. But maybe um, that failure could be a good opportunity to leapfrog these technologies, right? Where it's yeah. a better technology to have off-the-grid solar panel power than having a massive national energy true. grid that is, you know, trying That's to true. cross the entire country. Could be a good opportunity. And what would be a great opportunity, I don't know if uh, MCOPA is currently doing this, is having some sort of a government subsidy. So instead of the government paying to build a massive grid, they're making these solar panels more affordable for the user. So they're covered in part by the government, in part by the user. And uh, yeah, making that more widespread. You don't think it's it's an issue, or it's 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 a bit risky putting things like energy in the hands of private companies. I think as long as there's enough providers, you know, if you have a monopoly with MCOPA, that could definitely be, or any other one, that could definitely be a big risk. You don't know where that company will be in five years, ten years. But yeah, if you have enough providers that are competing to give the best services uh, at the lowest cost. I think the risk is um, the risk is factored out. Majed, uh, thank you very much for your time, and I hope you well rested from your trip. And I think partly you've inspired me. I'll, I'll probably do it, but I definitely won't do it on the bike. I'll probably drive around. And thanks for your time, Majed. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. Thank you for listening to the Tefomohapi Show, which is broadcast by iAfrican Radio. To be notified of future episodes of this podcast and any other shows from iAfrican Radio please visit radio.iafrican.com. That is radio.iafrican.com and subscribe. You can catch future episodes on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to leave us a review and rating of the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tefomohapi, which is T-E-F-O-M-O-H-A-P-I. And also don't forget to follow iAfrican2 on Twitter at I A F R I K A N. Hot.